Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Well, good morning on February 4th, 2024. 2024. Glad to see you all this morning. We're going to open up Zechariah 13 and dive into the first six verses and just cover this amazing prophecy of Jesus being wounded in the house of his friends and there's a lot to learn here, actually, for us in the process of getting over things, right? Wounds and betrayals and things in your lives that have a chance to really, the enemy can use to get you off course. So let's dive in and we'll open up with prayer. God, we thank you so much again for this time together and the word. Lord, we thank you that your word is transformational and that by it, according to Ephesians, we can renew our minds, we can uproot any bitterness in our lives. Lord, it is our shield of defense, our shield of faith, and our sword of the spirit. It's our defense and offense in this warfare that each one of us, whether we realize it or not, is a part of. And God, I thank you so much. We thank you that, Jesus, you are the word of God, incarnate in the flesh. And by your word, we have life and life more abundantly. And it is the only way to build our faith. And we thank you for it from Romans 10, 17. So teach us everything by your anointing in this time together, Lord, as we gather right here around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My, my son was picking up the notes yesterday with me, and the people at the print store know us pretty well after all these years of doing this. And the guy handed us the boxes, and he goes, they're a little thick this morning today. You guys are getting some extra preaching this weekend. And it's not... It's, we're going to go pretty fast, I promise. This, isn't, this won't take long, but I just thought, how cool is that? He's actually getting to know what we're doing here, and, and those people, I hope they're reading the notes. Maybe I'll just start handing them a copy before I leave, but in any case, we're going to dive in here to Zechariah 13. It's the second to last chapter to the book of Zechariah, and you know we really have to take serious that the anointing that we have, the Word of God and the anointing that we have with the Holy Spirit, we have the chance for the author himself to teach us everything. And it's so powerful. And you know, this book, as we've been going through, it just speaks of Jesus everywhere. In every chapter, every verse, there's so many prophecies about our Messiah here in this book. It's just incredible. And we've covered all of these, the, the stone with seven eyes, his throne and Jesus being crowned, Jesus the Nazarene, the king riding on a donkey from Zechariah 9.9, the shepherd, the good shepherd, versus the idle shepherd from Zechariah 11, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and what they did with the money, Jesus being pierced, remember we covered that in Zechariah 12, and then in Zechariah 14, we're gonna cover his return in power and destroying his enemies, and it's gonna set the stage for Armageddon, you know, chapter 12 set the stage for it, chapter 14 is when Jesus returns and actually conquers that staging ground. And so our outline here, we're at the very end of the book 
And this final section in Zechariah 12 through 14, it all covers the second arrival of Christ. And Zechariah, you know, what an interesting guy, that prophet that was raised up, that God gave him those 10 visions all in one night from Zechariah 1 verse 7 all the way to chapter 6 verse 15. And it starts with the riders under the myrtle trees and it ends with the four chariots. And it really those bookends define the entirety of those visions that God gave him all about Jesus. It's really, really neat how the Lord structured this book. Okay, so like I mentioned, chapter 12 set the staging ground for the climatic event of Christ's return. And that's all detailed in chapter 14 and frankly, all over the Bible. But the kingdom, the kingdom will be established by power. And I know I've said that the last few weeks in our intro slides, but this is not, our king is not one that's just running for re-election. He's, he is not one that's hoping there's not a cheat in the voting system. You know, he's not one that's just trying to outstump and, and gain contingents, right, throughout the nation or the world. He is the king, and Jesus will set up his kingdom through power. And you have the chance to either be a part of it willingly or to be forced out of it if you don't accept him. And that's kind of the decision point for everybody that's ever been born. But it will follow divine judgment upon the Gentile world powers. And it's the start, like we mentioned last time in 2 Samuel 7, of the Davidic kingdom. That promise that God made David. You know, our God is a God that you can trust. He's a man of his word. And when he told David that he would have a kingdom, his offspring would have a kingdom and a throne forever, he meant it. And that's who Jesus is. You know, he is the king. And I still find it amazing of two things. One, Christ is never set on his throne. His throne is in Jerusalem, the throne of David, as Gabriel told Mary in Luke. And two, you know, in heaven, everything that Moses did in the wilderness, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, all of that, if you read it closely in Exodus, they were shadows of the true reality in heaven. And I find that fascinating because the blood on the mercy seat, Moses and the children of Israel did it as a type, as a foreshadowing. But the true mercy seat in heaven never had blood before until Christ was crucified. And he took that blood and he sprinkled it in front of the mercy seat to declare open house. It was the first time in history since before Genesis 1-1 in eternity that blood was on the mercy seat. And I just find that fascinating. There was that, that pivotal moment that allowed an open house to take, to take place in heaven. And that open house is the fountain that's opened up to all of Israel in Zechariah 13, verse one. And 13 here, it's, the first five verses or so we're gonna cover this morning, they discuss the cleansing of Israel once the millennium is established. And chapter 14 actually lays out some of the events surrounding the staging ground of Armageddon, but prior to the kingdom being established. And so 12, 13, and 14 aren't necessarily in chronological order. And that's one of the challenges as you study the Bible that you have to recognize these aren't necessarily, God didn't write this down in perfect chronological order. It's kind of scattered out there so that you have to lean on the Holy Spirit to put it in order for you. And that's part of the, the joy of studying it. 
But the final, the final three verses of Zechariah, uh, or the final verse we're going to study today, verse 6, is a prophecy of Jesus being wounded in his hands. And what did he do with that? How did he get over that? So it's going to be a deep application for us. Okay, so opening it up here in Zechariah 13, 1, in that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, in that day is typically a reference to the day of the Lord. So if you see that in the Old Testament, keep in mind that usually means the day of the Lord, which it starts at the rapture and it ends when Jesus sets up the kingdom. God uses that phrase actually to mean that whole period of time. And if you study the day of the Lord, it's a day of gloominess, a day of darkness, a day of suffering and mourning, a day of deep judgment. You know, it's something that you and I, if you're in Christ, you are not appointed to it. Praise God. We are appointed to the day of Christ, not the day of the Lord. The day of Christ in the New Testament is the day of the rapture, but the day of the Lord. So there's a, a fountain opened up to the house of David. Now, a fountain in Hebrew here, it means a spring, a fountain, a source of life, joy, or purification. So there's only one fountain that is purifying to us, and that's the fountain that is the blood of Jesus. That fountain is purifying to us. Now, the cleansing fountain of Calvary at this time, it will finally be opened, and, and all of Israel will walk under that cleansing. It's been opened to the Jews since the cross, but unfortunately, the nation has rejected it. A lot, there are a lot of Jews that are Christians, and they've accepted Jesus, and they have the Holy Spirit in them, and they're a part of the church. But as a whole, the nation, if you've ever listened to uh, William Coper's old hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, he used this verse as his reference point to write that hymn, which I thought was pretty neat. But the cleansing fountain of Calvary, it'll finally be open to the willing house of Israel. And that's the key. God doesn't force himself on anyone. You have to willingly accept his cleansing. He's not gonna force it upon you. And at this point, Israel as a nation will finally enter that provision as a nation. And it's gonna open up Romans eleven twenty six through 27. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion, the deliverer. That's the name of Jesus. If you ever are reading through the Bible, put in your notes as you're going through, just write down every title of Christ you can find in the Bible. It's really powerful. The first time I went through the word of God cover to cover, it, it, I, I did two things. I wrote down every name of Christ and every name he calls us. And it's encouraging. Um, it's where I discovered that Jesus calls us his inheritance in the Bible. And that's really cool. But the deliverer, that's Jesus. And shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So unto Jacob or Israel. Now, anywhere in the Old Testament after, after Jesus renames Jacob, Israel, you can find a lot of spots God calls him sometimes Jacob when he's in trouble and sometimes Israel when he's in favor. And I've, I've always found that fascinating that God uses which name based on how he's acting or behaving at that time. So here, Jacob needs cleansing. You know, I once heard someone say, you wouldn't buy a used car from Jacob because he would, he'd find a way to just, you know, take you to the ringer. 
and get everything out of you. But he was conniving all throughout the Bible. But Isaiah 33, verse 24, and the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. And that's about Israel yet again. So Israel will be cleansed. Look at Isaiah 59, verses 20 through 21. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, or their children, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, saith the Lord, from henceforth, henceforth and forever. So in that verse, just notice that his spirit will be upon all of Israel at this time when the millennium is set up. His word will not depart from their mouths or the mouths of their children or their children's children unto lots of generations. It just keeps cascading down. And that has never been fulfilled, but it will in the millennium. Remember we studied last time or in the, the prophecy study we went through after Hebrews. In Jeremiah, there are no unsaved Israelites in the millennium, which is pretty amazing. And as we get next week, we'll look at, unfortunately, two out of three Jews die during the tribulation. So the ones that are remain and go through the fire, he cleanses, they're all saved and they teach their children the ways of the Lord in the millennium. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 19. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So there's going to be no more sorrow in Israel. Romans 10.3 kind of summarizes the issue. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, but they will. They will submit themselves to that. In verse two here in Zechariah 13, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of idols out of the land and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. You know, God even forbids the mentioning of an idol's name in the Bible. I found this fascinating looking at this in Exodus 23, 13. Look at this. And all things that I have said unto you be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Look at Psalm 16, verse four. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names into my lips. So in verse two here in Zechariah 13, God's cutting off two things in the millennium, the names of idols and the false prophets. And in Exodus 23, verse 13, and Psalm 16, verse four, there's a deep lesson here because it's, it's often, this is how serious God takes idolatry, that you're not even to, to utter the name of a false God or idol. Don't even let it be on your tongue, on your lips, you know, James tells us there is life and death in the power of the tongue. And this hit me pretty hard this week, actually, as I was studying it, because, you know, as, we're, as we study prophecy and we talk about occultic things or occultic religions or cults out there that masquerade as Christianity or whatever it is, you know, you do talk about the false gods they worship. And 
Maybe that's not so. Maybe we shouldn't even name and utter their name off our lips. But take that serious. You know, take that to the Lord and, and ask him what he would have of you. But in this verse here, this is also the only place in the entire Old Testament that the word, the phrase, unclean spirit is found. And unclean spirit is found all over the New Testament, but only here in the Old Testament. And it's the only place you get a hint of, of demonic spirits in the Old Testament. You know, when Jesus shows up in the, in the Gospels, all of a sudden there's all these demons and people are possessed and he's casting them out. And, and there's the, the demoniac of Gadara, remember, who had those legions of demons in him. And, and unclean spirits are everywhere. And if you're sensitive to it, you're thinking, well, where did these come from? Because they were nowhere in the Old Testament. You didn't see a lot of demonic activity with people being possessed in the Old Testament. But there's a hint of it here, the unclean spirits. Now, this is in direct contrast to last time from Zechariah 12.10, the spirit of grace and supplication. Okay, and that's the Holy Spirit. So the unclean spirits are banned out of the land in the millennium. Idolatry really was not a major problem since the exile into Babylon. Idolatry is what got them into the exile in Babylon, you know, unfortunately. And the ultimate idol worship will strangle the nation of Israel when they accept the idol shepherd from Zechariah 11 after the church is removed. Remember the idol shepherd, the title of the Antichrist from Zechariah 11. Okay, look at John 5, 43. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. And that's Jesus speaking of that another being the Antichrist coming in his name and being accepted by Israel, whereas Christ came in his name and he was rejected by them. Look at Matthew 12, 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. That's speaking of the spirit that was cast out, not the man. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished, tidied up, you know, if you will. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. Now there's a hint there from Jesus. Some demonic spirits are more wicked than other demonic spirits. They're all wicked, but some are more wicked. Now, that's kind of interesting. And they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so, shall it be also unto the wicked, this wicked generation. Now, there's a, there's a principle here that's very, very important. When you purge something out of your life, you've got to make sure you backfill it with the Holy Spirit. Because if you don't, you're leaving a vacuum. You're leaving a void and darkness likes to fill vacuums and voids. Darkness will creep in and take any room that you allow it to take. And people that are not saved and possessed, when they go through an exorcism or they get unclean or foul or unclean spirits cast off of them or out of them, it's so critical that they accept the Lord and get filled with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it can be much worse for them later just like what Jesus said, because the spirits walk through the dry places and then finally they just come back to where they were welcome and comfortable. And, but in your life as a believer, if, you're, if you have anything you're holding on to and you cast it out of your life, make sure you fill that space with God so that the enemy can't take a foothold again 
down the road. So unclean spirit, you know, it's all over the, the New Testament. False prophets will also be removed completely out of the land in the millennium. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 10, if you study those verses, it describes what you do for someone trying to get you into false idolatry or in Deuteronomy 18, 20, outlines what to do with a false prophet. And both of those decrease stoning at the end of it. So in Deuteronomy 30, 13, 6 through 10, verse 6 starts, starts out with, you know, if your brother or your mother, or your sister and all these things, if they entice thee secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers. Then as you study down in verse 10, God says, stone them. In other words, get them out of your life. They, they're bringing false idolatry into the land. Get them out. Deuteronomy 18.20, if somebody prophesies or says something, thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't come true, he also decreed stoning because they, they had to get the falsehood and the idolatry out. They had to purge it out. And there's such an object lesson there for us in our lives as Christians. You know, falsehoods, false idolatry, false teaching, things that are not of the Lord, you can't just linger and, and hold on to them a little bit and play with them, right? And let them, give them a place in your life. You have to purge it out. You have to violently get it out of your life to the point of stoning it. You know, what does that look like today? Well, cut off communication. Uh, get it out of your life. If there's someone, there's a, I won't say who it is, but there's a, a very famous person nationally that had, he's a Christian and he has a whole Christian show. And recently he had a person on his show and he started talking a lot about how the rapture is a false doctrine. And, you know, for years, as you listen to this guy, you're thinking, man, he's on track. He's got a great audience. He's teaching people the Bible. He's passionate about Jesus. And then he gets on and, and spills all this out. And it's like, wow, okay. Um, so, can you trust anything else he says? Is there some truth in it, but mixed with a falsehood? And so just, I stopped listening to him and won't listen to him again. But in any case, it's out there. And, and the point of it being is to pick that up though, you have to be in the Bible yourself. Because if you're not in the Bible yourself, people can say things that will tickle your ears and lead you astray. And that goes for anyone. There's no one immune to it. And so you've got to use the scripture as your defense where you filter everything you hear, Acts 17, 11, right? You've got to take it all back to the word of God. But this verse in Zechariah, verse 2 and 13 here, this is the only reference in the Bible to unclean spirits being banished in the millennium. And I think that's pretty amazing. It'll be a very different world at that time. Okay, in verse 3, And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy... Then his father and his mother that beget him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that beget him shall thrust him through or kill him when he prophesieth. Now, that's a pretty heavy, you know, kids in the Old Testament uh, were held to a very high standard. If they, ra if they railed against their mother and father, they were stoned. If they dishonored their, their father and mother in the Old Testament, if the kids were out of line, God said, stone them, take them out. You know, and I think, I think there were a lot of kids back then that probably thought twice about saying no to their mom and dad. 
and probably, they probably thought long and hard before when dad said, hey, I need your help out here before they said, no, I'm good. Uh, they, they probably, I bet that happened once or twice and the, kid, the rest of the kids were like, oh, this is serious. Uh, this is pretty serious. You know, it's like in the Middle East when they cut off people's hands for shoplifting. You know, what you see in California and New York would not be happening if the guy ran out with a purse in his hand and he got his hands chopped off. It would be over. There would be no more shoplifting. And there's, some, there's a reverential fear with judgment from God. And there should be in our lives too. When you think about our God is a consuming fire that is a righteous judge and king, it should make you think twice before you dabble in anything, right? Because he sees it. He doesn't miss it. It's not like you're doing something and he's going, oh, man, I'm so glad Matt got away with that this time. You know, thankfully, we can, we can keep working together here. Uh, God sees it, and we've got to take that walk serious. But false prophets and deceivers, they will abound in the end times. Jesus even said that in Matthew 24, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall gr- show great signs and wonders. The world's not ready for that. The world is not ready to be deceived by false signs and wonders, by false Christs and false prophets. The world will, will flock in droves when that happens because in the world's eyes, there's faith in what they see. And in your eyes as a Christian, there should be no faith in anything you see because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, according to Hebrews 11.1. 1. But in so much that, and here's a comforting word from Christ, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, if, that means it's not possible. And so thank God that we'll be removed in the rapture before then. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. The world's gonna believe that lie. 2 John 1, 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And, you know, God, the enemy has had the spirit of Antichrist ready really since the cross, honestly, uh, probably before then. Uh, He knows that he has to be ready in the wings at any time because as soon as the church is removed, he has a very short window. You know, so you could ask, hey, is the Antichrist alive today? I'd probably say yes. Is the Antichrist alive 100 years ago? I probably would have said yes because, because the enemy has to have him ready. Now, the question is, will he walk into power or not if the church is removed? You know, every generation, every church generation has had the chance to fight against that spirit and to war against it. You know, think of Hitler all the way back to Nimrod, uh, people that have tried to take over the world and usher in a one world government. And we've seen that set up about, started about five years ago, right before 2020, It was starting to get set up at the end of 2019, and then Satan tried to push it in rapidly and get the church caught up in it, and praise God, the Lord intervened and and gave us more space and time. But one of the ways, you know, how do you mark a false prophet? Well, 1 John 4, 1 through 3, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world, hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That's one way you can mark every occultic religion out there. 
There's a lot, of, a lot of religions out there that are under the banner of Christianity and they teach that Jesus was a great guy and a great prophet, but they, do not, they will not teach that he was the son of God in the flesh. That's where they divide the line. And it's so subtle because it sounds right. Jesus was a great man. He was a great prophet, great teacher, but he was also the son of God in the flesh. And if they won't say that, if they won't teach that to their people, you've gotta be very leery. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So all the way back in 1 John, God was telling us, hey, that spirit's in the world. It's trying to push itself in. Now, how quickly should we as God's people remove idolatry and falsehood from our lives? You know, how quickly? We'll look at Numbers 25, 7 through 8. And when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly, so the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. Remember, they weren't supposed to mingle with these other tribes and people groups. God told them, don't do that. Don't take a wife from that tribe. And this guy, this children of, the children of Israel, one of the men, when the men went and did that, well, Phineas was like, well, I know what this is going to do to us. And this plague started to spread in the camp, killing people. And so he took a javelin and went and just took them out himself, killed them both. And he was very zealous, right? He, he believed what God said and he acted. Now, today we have a much different world that we live in. You know, thankfully, if you have something going on in your life, no one here is picking up a spear to chase you. But that's how serious, there's a lesson there right for us that we've got to get that out of our lives. You've got to just purge it and cut it off. And thankfully, the word of God is surgical. You know, it divides us amongst the son of the soul and the spirit. It's very surgical. So you can use the word of God like surgery to cut out what shouldn't be there. It's not a sledgehammer. You know, it doesn't just break apart the whole body, but just cut out what shouldn't belong and, and cast it out. Okay, and it shall come to pass in Zechariah 13, 4 here. It shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed. Every one of his vision, when he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. A rough garment. Okay, a hairy mantle was typically worn by a prophet in ancient Israel. Elijah, remember, he wore a hairy mantle in 2 Kings 1, 8. And they answered him, he was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. I think, I guess that's something I don't ever have to worry about anyone saying about me, being a hairy man. Um, yes, I, I, I do have to shave occasionally, but um, I don't have that problem. But Elijah, he wore this mantle, right, of being a hairy mantle. Remember, remember Jacob and Esau, uh, when they, they had the, uh, Esau was a hairy man, and Jacob put on that animal fur to um, trick his dad, to trick Isaac. But Elijah passed his mantle onto Elisha. And that's all in 1 Kings 19.19. 19. Now remember, they have such an interesting relationship. Elisha wanted Elijah's mantle. And Elisha said, or Elijah told Elisha, it's, it's like a Dr. Seuss book, but Elijah told Elisha, if you see me caught up in the whirlwind, then you'll get my, my mantle and you'll, do a, you'll have a double portion. Remember that? 
Well, Elijah, if you study in the Bible, he did eight miracles. If you study Elisha, he did 16 miracles. And so he actually did get the double portion. And he saw Elijah caught up into the whirlwind. Now, you could get into a whole study there on the rapture and people that will see or not see you know, when the church is taken up, but it's pretty amazing. Look at 1 Kings 19.19. Uh, 19. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shabbat, or Shaphat, sorry, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Now 12 is important. That's the kingdom number before him. And he with the 12th and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Okay, so that mantle, when Elisha had it, when he, before Nebuchadnezzar came and, and wiped out Jerusalem, there's a legend the Hebrews have that I thought was kind of interesting. It's not in the Bible, but I just think it's interesting. The Hebrews have a legend regarding John the Baptist that Elisha put his mantle in the temple and it was all the way to when Zechariah, not this Zechariah, but John the Baptist, remember his dad was Zechariah and he was a priest that served in the temple. He took that mantle and gave it to John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist was, was baptizing at the Jordan, he was wearing Elijah's mantle. And the Jews have this whole legend and they, they've kind of passed it down and teach that. Again, it's not in the Bible, so I don't know if it's true or not. But what I find interesting is what Jesus said in Matthew eleven fourteen, when he told Israel, if ye will receive it, this is Elijah, which was to come, speaking of John the Baptist. And so there could be some truth behind that because if they had received Christ, it would not have been John the Baptist. Remember, he said it would have been Elijah and they would have ushered in the kingdom. And I think that's pretty interesting. Okay, in verse five here, but he shall say, I am no prophet, I'm a husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. In the closing verse, verse six, and one shall say unto him, now this is one of those things, God just, he puts these in here in the Bible. You know, in the middle of chapters as you're reading along and it seems out of place, but then when he does this, you've gotta know this always speaks of Jesus some way when he does this, it's incredible. Okay, in, in Zechariah 13, verse six, and one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And in that verse right there, you have an incredible messianic prophecy of Jesus having wounds in his hands given to him from the house of his friends. You know, and I know we're gonna get into this now. I know a lot of us in here, at some point in your life, you've been a betrayed by someone. You've been betrayed by a friend, a family member. Maybe you were young. Maybe you were an adult. You know, all of us have somewhere in our lives that something has happened. And I don't think many of us are immune to that. If you haven't yet, praise God. Um, if, you, if you haven't yet, praise God. And we pray that you never do because it's, it's one of the most difficult things you can go through is to be betrayed by a family member or a friend. Now, this concept here, the house of his friends, who, who would be Jesus's friends? You know, obviously we're gonna use the scripture to break this down, right? But remember Abraham, Abraham, 2 Chronicles 20, verse seven, art not thou our, our God who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to them to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever? Remember James 2, 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God 
and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. See, Abraham was saved the same way you and I are saved, by faith and believing God. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So Abraham is marked as the friend of God. Now, you can take that one step further in the Old Testament. Who was the beloved? There was only one disciple or one, I shouldn't say disciple, one person in the Old Testament that God called his beloved. It was Daniel. Remember he said, Daniel, thou highly favored and loved. And what Abraham was a friend of God. Remember when Jesus and the two angels came down before Sodom and Gomorrah and they said, Jesus said, should we not tell Abraham what we're about to do? Is he not our friend? And so there's a principle in the Bible of being a friend of God and the Lord showing you and giving you something that he's about to do. For Daniel, you take it a step further, he was the beloved of God, and he was given the most incredible book of prophecy about the end times of anyone in the scripture. And he got to see in that deep, deep relationship with the Lord what he wasn't just about to do, but what he was going to do thousands of years later. And so God revealing to him an even deeper strategic plan, right, for the Christ to set up his throne. So you go to the New Testament, and the disciples were called friends in John 15. Remember John 15, 15, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Okay, so if you're just a servant, if you're just a servant, you don't know what God's about to do. You don't know what his, your Lord's about to do. If you think about, think about a lot of Christians out there, 90, only 2% of, of churches in the world globally teach anything on prophecy. And that was a study that LifeWay Research did back in 2020 when the world shut down. They listened to audio podcasts and video services all over the world of churches, and they, they cataloged them to see who's out there teaching prophecy. And there was less than 2% of the churches that they listened to that did that. And, you know, there's something... There's something that makes you uncomfortable when you get deeper with God, right? There's something very disturbing as you get, as you get deeper with God. It, you get uncomfortable as you start to refine and burn off things in your life, and you're walking deeper and deeper in that relationship, and God starts to reveal to you what is he doing deeper, the deeper things of God out of the prophetic word of God. Remember Revelation, Revelation 19.10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, and so pro prophecy always speaks of Christ, and he wants to share that with you. But I call you not for servant, not, call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now remember, there was a disciple that was called the beloved disciple. Remember John? He was a disciple whom Jesus loved, and John wrote Revelation. So that same principle with Daniel held true in the New Testament. So you just kind of get a picture of these deeper relationships with God. Okay, remember that Pilate, he wanted to release Jesus. The Jews, the house of Abraham or the house of his friends, wanted him to be crucified. Now, after Jesus was crucified, Thomas would believe on the resurrected Lord only until he personally saw those wounds that Jesus received in the house of his friends. And remember in the upper room after Jesus is resurrected, Thomas states his case of disbelief, and he gets this unfortunate nickname that's forever engraved in our, our society, Doubting Thomas, remember? And we won't read all these verses, but they're here in your notes, John 20, 24 through 29. 
And Thomas does not believe until he sees the wounds in his hands and thrusts his hand in his side. And so he, he had disbelief in what Jesus did. Now, as I mentioned, some of the deepest wounds in your life, and I bet that was very wounding to Jesus, that here's Thomas, and he would not believe on the Lord and his resurrected body until he personally saw it and touched it tangibly. And I have to imagine that would be heartbreaking for Jesus. And as I mentioned, some of the deepest wounds in life can come from the house of your friends, family. People have gone through a lot. You know, people suffer abuse, people suffer rejection, people suffer through a lot of different things. And each one of us has an obligation, if you're going to rightfully walk with the Lord, to not let that, those wounds, beset you in your life and take you out. And there's a process God lays out in the Bible. Forgive, praise God, walk righteously on the straight and narrow, follow God and be in peace with all men, and then uproot any bitterness. And don't let it take root in your life. And as a result, you will not forsake your inheritance on the other side of this. Now, forgiveness. Remember this parable that Jesus had in Matthew 18? There was the man that owed a, lot of, a little bit of debt to a king, and he couldn't repay it. And so he went, and the king forgave him his debt. Well, that man had people that owed him things, much smaller than what he owed the king. And remember, he went out and tried to get those debtors to pay him. And when they couldn't pay, he imprisoned them. Okay, starting Matthew 18, verse 32. Then his Lord, after that, he called him, said unto him, Thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespass. Unforgiveness, which you remember we went through this in Hebrews, is not an English word, but not forgiving someone is a way, a very quick way to have an open door for spiritual warfare and attack to take hold in your life. If you harbor something and you won't release it and forgive it, the enemy will take that and twist it up in your life and use it in a very, very dark way. And he takes forgiveness very seriously. And it can be an open door to the enemy if you don't forgive. Okay, so now you praise God. Look at, let's look at Hebrews 12, starting in verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands, so you've forgiven. Lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Now remember, the Israelites won the war in Exodus when Moses' hands were lifted up, when he was praising God. When they were dropping down, they started to get defeat in the battle. And so you've got to praise God so you win in that warfare. Have an attitude and a heart of praising God. So when you've forgiven someone and you're not harboring that, it's very easy to transition into just constantly praising God and having a, an attitude of praise about you. Okay, in verse 13 here in Hebrews 12, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Now, God's using this as a lesson. Someone that's lame in the feet, 
when they're trying to walk straight, even if they think they're walking straight, they get off course because their steps are out of place. And if any part of you is weak, you can get off the straight and narrow very quickly and not even realize it. You can just walk off the path and not even realize, gosh, how did I get way over here? And look at, look at Luke 13, 13. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So she had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years, if you go back to verse 11. But she had a spirit of infirmity. God healed her, made her path straight then. Look at Acts 16, 11. Therefore, looking from Troas, we came with a straight course. And the next day, to Nopolis. Okay, so the straight course. You and I, we've got to walk the straight and narrow. Okay, then... So you're praising God. You're not harboring unforgiveness. You're forgiving everyone. You're walking righteously on the straight and narrow. You're praising God to walk righteously. Then you follow God and be at peace with all men. Now that's in verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And that's Isaiah 9, 6, who is the Prince of Peace. That's Jesus. So we've got to be at peace with God and all men. It's easy to be at peace with all men when you have a relationship with the Prince of Peace. When you're praying for those that have betrayed you or hurt you, it's very easy to be at peace with them. It's very easy to forgive them and be at peace with them. Okay, in verse 15 in Hebrews 12, looking diligently, lest any man fall of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up troubleth you, and thereby many be defiled. So you and I, we cannot be one of the many who are defiled by bitterness. So you have to uproot it out of your life. You can't just cut it down. It's like a weed in a garden. You know, in the summertime, as much as you want to just go down with the weed whacker and just cut them down, what happens? The next weekend, they're all sprung up and they're bigger than they were the last weekend. You've got to get on your knees, take it to the Lord, and just uproot it out of your life. Get it out. And once you do, then you don't let it fester and grow and overtake your life. It's amazing how weeds have a, a tendency, they can grow somewhere that grass doesn't even grow. You know, you can have a little crack in the concrete in the middle of a, a parking lot and somehow a weed springs up out of it. It's just amazing. But there's an object lesson there for us. So we've got to look diligently and looking diligently will prevent and uproot bitterness. So you have to be sensitive to it. Bitterness is that feeling of anger or unhappiness, disappointment at one's perception of being treated unfair, unfairly, which breeds resentment. And honestly, bitterness can be justified or fabricated. In either way, it's wrong in both cases. You've got to get it out. And it's, it's closely tied to one's willingness to forgive. If you forgive someone, then you should not have any bitterness toward them. And so we have to be able to do that. Okay, bitterness, it denies pleasure in your life, according to Job 21, 25. It puts you in bondage, according to Acts 8, 23. It corrupts your tongue in Romans 3, 4, verse 14. And it corrupts the body of Christ in Ephesians 4, 31. Because if someone, you know, as we're congregating as sons and daughters of the king, if someone's harboring bitterness, it's easy to start speaking ill about someone amongst the brethren, right? And then what happens? You start to slander their character. You start to plant seeds in other people about an, an identity of that person. And so you have to be very careful about that. It's a major source of division. 
It's closely linked, again, to murmuring, gall, and wormwood. And that's all from Deuteronomy 29, 18. Bitterness takes root and leads to one holding on to an offense and ultimately leads to your unwillingness to forgive. And when you've truly forgiven someone, you will pray for the Father to forgive them. And Jesus on the cross is our example of that in Luke 23, 34. Remember Stephen was stoned and in Acts 7, verse 60, he said, Lord, lay not their, the sin to their charge. He was praying for God to forgive them as well. And that's our model. Okay, picking up offenses, it's a major issue and leads to many falling away in the faith. You can find that in Matthew 18, six through seven about Jesus talking about the little ones. A lot of times when you pick up an offense, you may not necessarily offend a child, but you may pick up an offense and offend someone who's a child in the faith. And Jesus takes both very seriously. So people that are new in the faith, you've got to be of the utmost uh, behavior, right? In who you speak about, how you behave around them so that you don't lead them astray because there's a heavy price to pay if you do that. Okay, and, and all of that is a result. You will not forsake your inheritance from Hebrews 12, 16, and 17. Let there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So Esau let bitterness take root, in that bitterness, he went through that path. He didn't forgive. He didn't praise God. He didn't walk straight and narrow. He wasn't at peace. And so bitterness took root. And as a result, his lot from the Lord, he, he wanted nothing to do with it. He grew bitter toward it. And unfortunately, leading him to forsake his birthright and regard it so low, it was only worth to him as much as one morsel of meat. That's all what God had laid up for him. He valued it for one morsel of meat. And notice that God references Esau as a profane fornicator. Okay, that's not, not someone to exactly model your walk over, right? And he sold his birthright in Genesis 25, 34. And he found no place of repentance because at the end of it, which is a typology for you and I in Christ, the father, Isaac, could not, after he distributed his inheritance, it was too late for Esau he was on the other side of this. His inheritance had been distributed and he found no place of repentance, though he sought it with sorrowful tears, according to Genesis 27, uh, verse 38. And so for you and I, that's the key because we have to walk peaceably with all men, forgive everyone, don't let a betrayal or an offense take root in your life, walk then stay on the straight and narrow because Satan will try to use that and pull you off off the path that God has for you. Stay on the straight and narrow, praising God, walking straightly, living for the Lord, and not letting bitterness take root. And as a result, you will not forsake your inheritance at the end of this, like Esau did. And in Revelation 3, 11, remember, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And the key for all of us, just to skip down here, is to stay in the book of remembrance. And I covered this last time, but Malachi 3, 16 through 18. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord. So it's not the book of life 
where your name's written if you just are saved. It's the book of remembrance, where if you feared the Lord and served him and that thought upon his name, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked. So when we come back with Christ, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. So it's just amazing. That whole, that whole pattern, forgiveness all the way to uprooting bitterness in your life and thus walking into your lot from the Lord. It's just incredible. What an amazing, amazing pattern that we all can model our lives after. To do that though, You've got to be born again. So it's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Then you can start, you can start that path on the straight and narrow of being after you're born again. And so if anyone's out there watching that hasn't been saved, I just implore you to do that right now. Get born again and you will forever have the greatest relationship you could imagine in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much again for this time together. Lord, I do pray that you would let each one of us take seriously the call to uproot any bitterness in our lives and to get it out. And Lord, I pray that Father, you would give each of us the strength and the courage to take that to you. And Lord, to let you show us where there may be something that we've been holding on to, an offense, a trespass, something from our past, Lord, that just rises up occasionally that the enemy tries to use to get us off course. God, we may we yield that to you and surrender that. Surrender that to you, Father. And Lord, we thank you so much for everything that you have given us. We praise your name. We worship you. Be with us as we leave this place. And God, thank you for the model that you set for us of being wounded in the house of your friends and how you pressed on, Lord. You forgave them and you went on to the call, the call to die for every one of us. And even those that betrayed you, May we take that model into our own lives and not let a stubbornness and a willingness not to forgive them take hold and grip us. God, thank you again for this time together. Bless our kids in the week ahead and watch over us, Lord, in all that we set our hands to. In your matchless name we pray, amen.